If you please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. We're going to read this entire suffering servant section. It starts on uh, chapter 52, verse 13. I'm going to re- read to the end of 53. And this passage is, is an amazing passage. It's a well-known passage, and it, it's, it's a beautiful passage. And it gives us really the clearest articulation of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. This, this is an essential doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And it's not just the clearest articulation in the Old Testament, it's the clearest articulation anywhere in the Bible. And it's really hard to overemphasize the importance of this chapter and this message that we're about to look at. Isaiah 53 has had a tremendous impact on the Jewish people, bringing ethnically Jewish people to Christ. And I had a friend, Lynn and I had a friend when we were in, in vet school who was raised culturally Jewish. And she went to college and some Christians came and they challenged her. They said, read Isaiah 53. She didn't trust their book, their Bible. So she went home, she found her Jewish Bible, wiped the dust off of it, looked in the index to try to find where Isaiah was and turned to Isaiah 53 and she started reading it. And her words was, it's him, it's him. And she was converted and she's been walking with Christ now for over, over 20 years. She's come to faith. And in fact, this, this chapter is actually not read in many Jewish synagogues. If you looked at their lectionary, their reading, they have chapter 52 of Isaiah, and they skip over to chapter 54. They don't read 53. And missionaries in Israel, they would actually read this chapter. They'd go up to people on the street and say, this is from the Bible. They won't tell them it's from the Old Testament and New Testament. And they'll read Isaiah 53 and say, who's this talking about? They'll say, well, it's obvious. It's talking about Jesus. And these are secular Jews. They're saying, it's a New Testament. It must be one of the Gospels. And they don't even realize where it's coming from. And this is really the, the straightforward reading of this passage of Isaiah 53. And anyone with any familiarity with Orthodox Christianity, like a man on the street of Israel, would recognize that these verses speak of Jesus. And for Christians, we don't have to speculate. We know that they speak of Jesus because the New Testament tells us they speak of Jesus. The epistle reading from 1 Peter quotes this, tells us it is referencing Jesus. But also, if you remember in Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, he is reading from the book of Isaiah. He's reading this very passage. And he asks Philip, he says, who is this about? And Philip explains that this is a prophecy about Jesus. And in preparation of this sermon, on Monday I met with, with Travis Campbell, who is, uh, had uh, many conversations with a Jewish man who rejects Jesus. And he rejects this straightforward interpretation uh, and reading of this prophecy about Jesus. And Travis gave me some, some resources and some podcasts to listen to and some books to read about what the, what the Jewish interpretation of this scripture is. And, and modern days Jews, they reject the New Testament's authority. So even though the New Testament re- refers that this refers to Jesus, they would reject that. So I wanted to get some understanding of how they would understand, how they would approach this text. And again, Travis gave me some resources, and I'm not going to go into a lot of detail. If you're, if you're more curious, you talk to me or talk to, to Travis, because he's been in these conversations about it. But lastly, before I read this text, I just want to mention that this text itself has apologetic value, which means it, it, is, it is good for, for a defense of our faith, defense of Scripture, the supernatural um, origin of Scripture. See, because what we see in this text, and and really all of Isaiah, is prophecy about Jesus. As we've been going through over the last several months, looking at these prophecies, and we see how they are fulfilled in Jesus, the virgin birth, the suffering servant, we see of the line of David, we see all of these are fulfilled in Jesus. 
Now, many liberal scholars, they'll say, no, that prophecy has to be written after the fact. There's no way that they can predict the future. As a matter of fact, the passage that we do not look in, uh, Isaiah actually names the person, the Persian leader, who is going to set God's people free from, from captive in, uh, captivity in, in Babylon. His name is Cyrus. And they say, well, it must have been written after the fact, because there's no way that Isaiah could have known that. But that can't be true with these prophecies. And the reason why is we actually have a physical copy of the book of Isaiah that was written prior to Jesus' birth, but 150 years prior to his birth, that has all of these prophecies that we've been looking at. It's identical to the book. So there is, there is that apologetic value. And, and, and there's so much here of this, but we're just going to focus on, really we're going to focus on this middle portion of, of verses 4 through 6 of the suffering servant. But we're going to look through this, and, and again, there's, there's much here. There's books have been written on it. Travis lent me several of these books. There's so much that we can go in here. But we're just really going to be scratching the surface. So Isaiah, starting at chapter 52, verse 13, going through all of chapter 53. Hear now the word of the Lord. Behold, my servants shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which was not seen told to them they see. And that which they have not heard they understand. In chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. So like sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken with the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. 
<clears throat> Lord, we do are amazed at this, at this passage. We're amazed at who it points to, our Lord. And Lord, I know many of us have heard this passage many times read, but Father, give us fresh eyes to see it and a fresh heart to appreciate it, to appreciate what he went through for us, what he suffered for us. Lord, I pray that we will hear from you. Lord, I pray that you'll take my feeble words and you'll anoint my feeble words, that I will speak only your truth, only your truth with the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray, Father, every one of us here, every one of us who's listening on the live stream, everyone who listens years from now on Sermon Audio, will be changed from that encounter with Jesus. And we will be more like him. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, most people who read this passage, even if they're not Christian, even if they have a, a passing understanding of Orthodox Christianity, even secular Jews in Israel, they recognize this suffering servant. They recognize that this is speaking of Jesus Christ. But there are two groups, two groups that vehemently, vehemently oppose this interpretation. And the one of them is what would be expected, Jewish rabbis and and people like the man Travis is corresponding with. See, they reject Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, and they certainly can't acknowledge that their own scriptures point to him. Their own scriptures describe him here. And that would be an admission, really, that everything that they believed is wrong. Everything that they, all their family traditions are wrong. This would, this would be an admission that they are actually opposing the God they claim to follow. The emotional cost of admitting this would be just too high. The other group that opposes this interpretation is liberal Christianity. And this may be surprising, right, because they're not Jewish. They profess Jesus. They should acknowledge that this scripture points to Jesus, but why would they reject this, this reading of Isaiah 53 as, as a suffering servant, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, these both groups really have the same objection. And it's an objection really that hits the, the core of their belief system. And it's a belief system that, in essence, is the same, liberal Christianity and Judaism. See, if this prophecy about Jesus and this prophecy identifies really, if, if this prophecy is about Jesus, and if it identifies Jesus' essential uh, redemptive mi- mission, the essence of his redemptive mission, then what it does is it nullifies this foundational belief of modern Judaism and liberal Christianity, and really the foundational belief of every other religious worldview other than biblical Christianity. So the foundation of uh, belief of Judaism, the foundational belief of liberal Christianity, the foundational belief of every other religion, every other worldview, is that of works righteousness. That means that what I do earn my favor with God. I could save myself by my actions, either by thinking the right thing, by doing the right thing, by being a good person. This is what determines my salvation. And really, this is the worldview of every other, other religion other than biblical Christianity. So the Jewish and, and, and the liberal interpretation of Isaiah 53 doesn't believe that the suffering servant is Jesus, but rather what it points to is Israel. Now, exegetically, this really seems forced, and I'm not going to go into this passage because I'm not, I'm not doing what Travis was trying to do, talking with a Jew and trying to prove to him that he's interpreting it wrong. And if you're interested in that, go, go talk to Travis, talk to me, we can give you, give you why this is a forced interpretation. But as often as the case, what we see is it's our emotions and what we want the text to say that really determines our interpretation more than what the text actually says. See, the truth really is a stumbling block. 
And in this case, in the case of unbelievers, that stumbling block is Christ. That stumbling block is the gospel. And at the center of the gospel is the substitutionary atonement. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Don't get scared by these big words, substitutionary atonement. We're going to explain what this means. This basically means Christ paying the penalty for his people as their substitute. That's the gospel. That's the heart of the gospel. And this, this passage clearly teaches this. And the world, the unbelieving world, vehemently opposes this. And I mentioned this example before, but I, I think it, 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 we should repeat it. A couple of years ago, the PCUSA was updating their hymnal. And they wanted to include the song that we're going to sing as our closing song. If you take a look at this closing song, In Christ Alone, a great song. They wanted to include it. But there was one line that they didn't like. It, 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 was, it, it was really bothering them. If you look at the second verse, right near in the middle, it says, Till on that cross as Jesus died. And the next line is what they couldn't, they couldn't stand. They wanted to change. It says, The wrath of God was satisfied. They didn't like that. They didn't, that, that made God seem mean. They didn't want, they didn't want to talk about the, the wrath of God. This, this is a, a mean God. So what they wanted to change it is to the love of God was magnified. So on the cross when Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. And the, and the authors of this song, Stuart Town and, and uh, Keith Getty, they said, no, we're not going to allow you to make that change because it cuts at the heart of the, of the song. The song is about Christ, Christ's substitutionary atonement, which is what made us right with God. So, so what, is the, what is their alternative interpretation of Jews or of, of, uh, of the... Um, of the suffering servant. What, what, what is a way that they would explain how this means? So what, what I heard, again, one of the resources Travis gave to me was a rabbi. And the way he described what the suffering servant was, he said he used the Holocaust to explain it. He said the Holocaust shows how Isaiah 53 applies to Israel, applies to the Jews. He said that the suffering that the Jews endured during the Holocaust, what it did is it made the Gentiles in Germany, it made them feel guilty. If they, they felt guilty of what happened. And this led them to repent of their sinful treatment of the Jews and allowed them to, um, uh, these Gentiles, to basically to turn, become Jews, to turn to the, the God of Israel. And it was this repentance and this turning to Yahweh, which actually, and becoming Jewish, which actually saved them. That was the, that was the interpretation of the suffering servant that the, the person said, that it, that it had to do with the Holocaust. Now, this, this interpretation does violence not only to the text, but can you see how this interpretation is really just works righteousness? It's works righteousness. Basically, the grounds of the, of, the, of the Gentile salvation is they're feeling guilty of what happened to the Jews. And the, so they, they decided to follow the Jewish God, follow the Jewish traditions. Now, this says nothing about any other sin that they may have committed. It's like their only sin was the Holocaust. And if you look at it even today, that doesn't matter. Most people who are alive today were not alive during the Holocaust. And the ones who are alive were little children. Unless you're 100 years old, you probably had nothing to do with the Holocaust, even knowing what was going on at the time. So you, so you see that this is not, this doesn't make any sense, this type of thing. It's an emotional argument. That's what they do. It's like, you, you, we feel bad about the, the Holocaust, and we don't, we don't want to question it. But it has nothing to do with what has happened. You see, in this view, it's not Christ's suffering. It's not Christ's payment for the sins of his people that brings about atonement that suffers the, the wrath of God. It's basically, they're just an example. The Jewish people are an example of suffering that inspires people to live good lives. And it's this good lives that actually saves them. It simply works righteousness. 
And my friends, this is not what this passage teaches. This passage teaches substitutionary atonement. And substitutionary atonement is the essence of this passage, and it is the essence of the gospel. It's, if you don't understand this, you do not understand the gospel. It's that important. It is crucially important that we understand substitutionary atonement. It is literally the difference of an eternity in the torments in hell or an eternity in the bliss of heaven. And this doctrine is hated by the unregenerate. And the reason it's hated is because it attacks our pride. It attacks our pride. It shows us that we are incapable of saving ourselves. It shows us that it is all of Christ. It shows us that by his wounds we are healed. It is by his suffering that we are made whole. And we need Christ. Apart from Christ, we have nothing. Apart from Christ, we are lost. That's what this is telling us. And this truth, my friends, this truth is hated by the unregenerate. But this truth is love. It is love by those who have been touched by God's grace. Those who become a new creation through Christ. And, and supernaturally have faith imparted to him. The true believer cries out with the Apostle Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. For it is the righteousness of God revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this is, this is the gospel. This is why it is so important that we understand this passage. So let's, let's dig into this passage. Let's see what it says. So chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, this gives us the high level, basically the high level summary of Christ's work. And then the details we dig into in chapter 53. So the big picture here of the suffering is that the servant will be exalted. He will be exalted. He will be high and lifted up. And this is actually the same words, same language that we saw way back when we looked at Isaiah chapter 6. Remember chapter 6? That was Isaiah's vision of God, the Father, high and lifted up on his throne. So here you see that this servant is equated with God. There's a divinity, there's a hint of divinity in the suffering servant. But then there's a paradox, what you see. The paradox is that this exalted, this divine servant appears to be marred, marred beyond human semblance. See, this is not what we, we would expect. He's, he's, he's not what, what is expected. He is despised. And what this shows us is the way God works is completely different. Completely different than what the world expects. See, the world expects to see greatness. The world expects to see great things done by people who are great themselves. But God does the greatest things through those who appear weakest. Through those who appear to be nothing. Those who appear to be least and and utterly insignificant. And God does this work not in spite of their weakness, but actually through their weakness. So this servant, through his suffering... Through his apparent weakness, it says he will sprinkle many nations. We see that in in verse 15. And this sprinkling, this sprinkling is with his blood. This blood will atone these many nations for their sins. Christ's blood will make them clean. Christ's blood will prepare them so that they can actually have fellowship with God. They can come into his presence because they have their, their, their filthy sins cannot come into God's presence. I remember we did this example when we did our parable of the pooch. And then when we first moved into our house, our dog, um, we, we had no lawn in the backyard. So it was raining, and so it was all mud. And our dog, Granite, went out there. And he was caked completely with mud. And we had, and Lynn took a picture outside. You, could, you just saw eyeballs in mud. That was all it was. And do you think I'm going to let that dog in my brand new house with my new carpeting, my new floors, and my furniture? Not a chance. He needed to be cleaned. And he couldn't clean himself. 
Lynn had to clean him. She had to go out there and with a hose and wash him out and clean him. That is what we are like. We are dirty like that. We are dirty. We are not fit to be in God's presence. But notice the one who does the cleaning. And no, or notice the one who's being cleansed here. It's not simply the Jews. It is the nations. See, it's not just God's people. It's the nations. It's, it's the, the filthy Gentiles who knew nothing about God. Those are the ones who are cleansed. And what this shows us is the kingdom of God is expanding. It's expanding just beyond just one nation. It's expanding to the entire world. And the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, is not just Savior for the Jews. He is that. But he is Savior to the whole world. He is the only Savior. There is no other name through which men must be saved. And verse 15 continues by saying that kings, now think about kings. Kings are the the most powerful men in the world. It says they shall shut their mouth. They shall shut their mouths because of him. And they'll shut their mouths because they will see him as he truly is. The veil will be lifted. And, and, and there are those who are saved, saved by his blood. They will be silent. They will be silent out of awe. They will be silent out of respect, out of love for this gracious Savior. But those who refuse, those who refuse to, to bow, they'll be silenced by an abject terror when Christ's true nature is revealed as the mighty Lion of Judah, as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And those who are saved will see because the gospel, which, which was concealed before that, is now revealed to them. They will understand because they were given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will open their eyes. See, we can't see this. This, this makes no sense. Makes no sense to an unbeliever. An unbeliever comes in here, they would think that I'm, what, what does this guy make, move, waving his arms and all this stuff? What's he talking about? It makes no sense to them. It's only when the Holy Spirit opens our hearts, opens our minds, that it's, wow, we see Christ, we see him for who he was, we see our need for him. That's what they will, they will have the Holy Spirit to reveal to them. Moving into chapter 53, we see the, the, this big picture now in, in detail. And verse 1 here starts with a question. And it's a question really that's asked in astonishment. The question is, who will believe? Who will believe what he has just heard? And who will believe it? Because it's utterly unbelievable. See, God's plan is not something that anyone would make up. If you ask someone to make up a religion, they would not make up Christianity. It would make, it's just too ridiculous. It makes no sense from a worldly perspective. And this was the plan was not from men. It had been revealed, it says, from the arm of God. So what's that mean? The arm of the Lord. Well, this is talking about the power of the Lord. See, the gospel, which is foolishness to men, it is the wisdom of God. It is the power of God. And my friends, this, this blows us away. And it should blow us away, what God is doing. So verse 2, it, it makes it clear to the suffering servant, he is an unlikely hero, unlikely, unlikely savior. He, he's not what we would expect. He's, he's not impressive at all. It says, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. So basically what this is doing, this is, con- this is comparing the suffering servant, this is comparing Christ to a weed. Think of a weed. You know, you're, 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 I was just yesterday with, with Lynn. We were in the garden. We were weeding. And, and weeds are not something you value. As a matter of fact, you hate weeds. You, you despise weeds. You're trying to get rid of them. They're, they're at best insignificant. And if they are noticed, they're annoying and they're hated. They're removed. They're discarded. Never to be considered. I was taking those weeds. I'm not considering I wonder what that weed is doing now. No, you get rid of it. You burn it. You're not considering it at all. And this is the way the world sees Jesus. He's that annoying weed in the garden that you just want to get rid of. He's utterly insignificant. He's annoying. He must be removed. He must be disregarded. Verse 2 continues. 
So he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. See, he, he would have been considered hideous. If they were looking at the, and, and that's kind of why we, we, what, what Nathan read, some of this discouraging that he went through and the mocking he went through, he would have been considered hideous. Have you ever had someone that was so disfigured that you, you had to turn your face away because you didn't want to stare? But it wasn't just the outward appearance. I remember when, when we lived in Blacksburg, there was a girl that we knew, and she was, she was badly burned in a house fire. And I remember seeing her a couple of months later, and, and you, you couldn't help it because, because her, her skin was burned, and, and, and uh, you know, it, it was instinctively you wanted to stare, so you, you, would, you would look away. But we knew this wasn't her fault. See, we knew she was a victim. We had compassion for her. We sought to help her. We, we had fundraisers to help for their medical, their bills. She was not rejected. She was not despised. She was loved. So we had compassion on her. But this is not what we see for the suffering servant. Verse 3 tells him that he was despised. He was to blame. People, people hated him. They said, you, what, what you look like, what you're getting, you deserve that. There's no compassion on him. He got what he deserved, or at least what we thought he deserved. He was rejected by men. And we see this clearly in Christ's passion and in crucifixion that Nathan read for us. The soldiers, the crowds, they mocked him. They spit on him. They despised him. There was no pity there. He was getting what he deserved. No compassion, no pity, only hatred, only sadistic joy at his torment. And I think Mel Gibson did this well in, in his movie a couple of years ago, The Passion of the Christ, where he showed this demonic frenzy among the crowds, and demonic frenzy, especially there was the, the, the soldier who was whipping at him. You can see him. He's just going crazy. It's like he's being, being controlled by a demon. They just hated Jesus so much. And I think it was inspired by, by a demon, what was going there. But here's the thing about this. Again, all this hatred, all this, this uh, the people who looked at him just hated him, wanted to hurt him, wanted to kill him. This hideousness, this appearance, this evil that was attributed to him, it was not native to him. It was not natural to him. It wasn't his natural state of being. As we saw in, in 52.13, it says he was wise, he was prosperous, he was exalted, he was high and lifted up. He was the mighty God. This is his natural, his natural state. See, the real Christ was revealed. Remember during the transfiguration when, when Peter, James, and John, they went up on the mountain, and then just for a brief moment, the real Jesus came through. And remember, he was, bright, he was shining bright as the sun, white as, as snow, showing the purity of him. That was the real Jesus that was veiled. Now, this appearance that we see of Jesus, this appearance of the suffering servant, this disdain, this, this hatred that was heaped upon Jesus, this was not native to him. And here's, here's the really wild part about it. Here's a really wild part. This horror described in verses 1 through 3, this is not a description of Jesus' natural state. It's a description of our natural state. It's a description. Jesus was bearing our sin. So the hideousness attributed to Jesus, the suffering servant, this is the hideousness of the sins of his people that were placed on him. See, Christ was pure. Christ was spotless. He was perfectly sinless. Even as he was bearing our sins, Christ himself was perfectly pure. And the appearance from which men hid their faces and, and despised and hated and rejected and turned their faces away, that was our appearance. See, the suffering servant, he is a, a mirror into the soul, but not into the perfect, spotless soul of Jesus, but into our own putrid souls. We see, when we're looking at him, that hatred is the hatred of our own sins, the hatred of ourselves if we understood it. Now this brings us to the heart of the passage, verses 4 through 6. 
And this is really the heart of the gospel. See, these three verses, I think these are probably among the, the three most important verses in the entire Bible. I'm just going to read these again, because we really need to understand these verses. And, and not only understand, we need to marvel at them. We need to, our jaws need to drop when we read this verse. Because this is really the foundation of any hope we have. Let me read these verses again. Surely he, Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So verse 4, it says, he suffered for us. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. It was the penalty for our sins that he was enduring. This is what he was paying. And how do we react? How do we respond? It seems, it, it says that we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. <clears throat> we thought he got what he deserved. We thought it was totally appropriate what he had. We, we mocked him. We thought that he was getting what he deserved. We were completely oblivious to the truth. Again, so we mocked and despised him. And then verse 5 clearly shows the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement. See, he was our substitute. He was not paying his own sins. He was paying our sins. It says he was pierced for not his own transgressions. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed not for his own sins, not for his own iniquities. He was crushed for our iniquities. See, this suffering, this suffering as our substitute, this suffering was effective. It accomplished his purpose. It totally and it completely absorbed the wrath of God. Again, what, the, the, the doctrine that the world hates, the wrath of God, it absorbed the wrath of God against the sins of his people. On the crosses, Jesus died. The wrath of God was satisfied. Every sin on him was laid. And here in the death of Christ, everyone who believes in him, that is our only hope to live. His chastisement brought us peace. And what this is, this is talking about peace with God. This is ultimately the only kind of peace, because every other peace flows from that. Peace with each other, peace with ourselves, peace with our situation, all comes from peace with God. We don't have peace with God, we have no peace at all. But we have peace with God. And why do we need peace with God? Because Jesus, why do we have peace with God? Because Jesus absorbed the wrath of God. And that wrath of God was a sin barrier. There was basically a barrier between us and God. We were under God's judgment. And this enmity between our rebellious race and a holy God was removed by Jesus, was removed because that wrath was paid for by Jesus. It says, by his stripes we are healed. That's by his suffering. See, his suffering is the cure for our terminal illness. Each one of us, when we are born, we have this terminal illness. It's our sin nature. And that sin nature was crucified in Christ. And by Christ's death, we have eternal life. And now verse 6, I think, verse 6 is the gospel in a nutshell. So it starts the gospel. Remember what I say when you, when you start with the gospel? What do you got to give them first? You got to give them the bad news. Well, it starts with the bad news. It says, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned from God's way. We have turned from following God. We've turned to our own way. We want to do our own stuff. We want to be our own God. We're rebels. And because of that, we deserve God's wrath. But instead, instead of pouring that wrath on us as was deserved, the Lord poured it on Christ. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
Again, these verses clearly describe the substitutionary atonement. They clearly describe the gospel. Verses 7 through 9, this is, provides for us an identification of who this Messiah is. It's like a fingerprint of the Messiah. See, through these prophecies, Christ is described. And these prophecies, along with all the prophecies that we see in Isaiah, as well as in the Old Testament itself, they point to one person and one person only. I heard some of all the predictions that are in the Old Testament. And if you figure out the odds of one person that could, could fulfill all of those, the odds come to more than the number of electrons there are in the universe. That's pretty big odds, if you think about it. That's like saying you're going to have an electron, you may be here and a star, you know, 30,000 light years from here or, or in the piano, and you're just picking it on a first shot and getting it. That's the odds, which basically means it's infinite odds. You can't get it. But these are pointing so we know who this person is. They point to Christ. They provide the fingerprint of our Savior. It says even though he was oppressed and afflicted, he did not complain. He did not open his mouth. He was silent before his accusers. What do we see? Nathan read that. Jesus was silent before his accusers in our gospel reading. Jesus did not seek to defend himself. In verse 7, Jesus is described as a sacrificial lamb being led to the slaughter. And this is exactly what he was. In fact, he was the sacrificial lamb. All the other sacrificial lambs throughout history pointed to him, were fulfilled in him. Is it any coincidence that the temple, after Jesus had done this one sacrifice, the temple was destroyed and there was never another sacrifice to Yahweh again? Because the final fulfillment was done. The final sacrifice was made. There was no need for any other sacrifices. Verse 8 said that he was cut off from the living. Basically what this means is he died. It means he was killed. See, the sacrificial lamb was just that. It was sacrificed. It was killed. It had to give up its life. That was the penalty for sin. That was the penalty for our sin. It was death. And he suffered that death. The death that we deserved. Verse 9 says that he made his grave with the wicked. See, he was, he was crucified. And crucified criminals, they were pulled off the, the, the cross and they were thrown in a pile. They were on a mass grave. That's where he was. But you notice this was not the case for, for Jesus. Jesus was buried in a rich man's tomb. Again, as Nathan read, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. Another detail that points that Jesus is the fulfillment. See, all of these prophecies, they have a purpose. They identify who the suffering servant is. They identify the one person, the one and only fulfillment of this prophecy. And Jesus and Jesus alone is the suffering servant. He is the one who died to sacrifice in our place, the sacrifice for his people. Now, verses 10 through 20, or 10 through 12, they give us the divine commentary. This is where God is saying, what does this all mean? He's given us the commentary. We see now these events from the Lord's perspective. And the Lord's telling us what these events mean. And basically, the bottom line is the Lord is active. The Lord is sovereign. Look at verse 10. It says, we see that the Lord was not surprised by what happened, but rather we see that this was according to his plan all along. It was the Lord's will to crush him. It was the Lord's will to put Christ to grief. And the question is, why? Why would they do this? Why would the Lord allow such a wicked and injustice to take place as Christ, an innocent victim, to be so horribly treated? Is it any wonder why so many people are horrified by, by our theology of the, of the substitutionary atonement? Well, the reason why is this was the only way. It was the only way. This was the only way that God's justice could be maintained. See, God is perfectly holy. God cannot wink at sin. He cannot simply just say, all good, let's let it go. If he did that, he wouldn't be good. If he did that, he would not be God. 
See, the reality is sin has consequences. Disobedience has consequences. Disobedience is costly. It is disruptive. Atonement must be made. Let me give, let me give you an illustration. Say I loan my car to someone. So, so, say someone like maybe my daughter, my lovely daughter, and she's you know, riding in my car and you know, maybe listening to some music and not paying attention, and she, she kind of goes against a, a fence or something, puts a long gash in my car, right? Now, my daughter is pretty as she is. She doesn't have a lot of money. She's not going to be able to afford to fix it. And if any of you have been to a body shop, you know how much it costs. That, that scratch is probably $2,000 to fix. <clears throat> so she doesn't have the money to fa- fix it. Now, I can, I can apologize, you know, because she's so cute. I can say, well, no problem. Don't do this. Let me just tell you. Don't do this. This is an example, a sermon illustration. But if I say, you're so cute, you can get away with it. Now, she's forgiven, right? I forgive him. But what about my car? I still got a scratch in my car. I've got to do, it's going to cost me money to fix that car. It's going to take effort to fix that car. Every sin has a consequence. You can't just forgive, you can't just forgive it. Well, it's the same thing with God. The good news news is, just like Hannah didn't have to pay for the car, the good news is we don't have to pay for our sins. The punishment is not required from us. God himself, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, he is the one who paid the price. Also, verse 10 implies resurrection here. Here we see the resurrection of the suffering servant. See, it says he shall see his offspring. That's his spiritual offspring. That's the the fruit of his labor. That is those who are redeemed by his blood. That is every one of us who is a believer. He is seeing us. He shall prolong his days. And this is an expression basically meaning long life. So So basically, what does it say is a suffering servant will be raised? And Christ is alive. He's alive today. He was resurrected over 2,000 years ago, but he's still alive. He is at this very moment in the, in the physical and glorified body, a body that each one of us are in Christ. One day we will have a body just like his. What, what, an amazing, what an amazing promise we have here. But not only is the servant raised from the dead, he is glorified, he is exalted. The veil is now removed. We see him for how he is and how he always was, how he truly always was. And verse 12 shows us that the anguish endured by the suffering servant was worth it. It shows his soul was satisfied. And this is, this is remnant of, of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, which speaks of Jesus, where it says, who for this joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of God, at the, uh, at the right hand of the throne of God. See, verse 12 basically gives us the bottom line result. The sacrificial death of the servant leads not only to his own glory and to the eternal blessing and the glory, but also the eternal blessing and glory of all his people. See, he shared a portion of the spoils. And basically the imagery here is, is a conqueror who's sharing the victory. A guy goes into to, to, to a, a kingdom and they conquer and they take all the spoils and he shares it with his troops. That's what it is. We are participating in this. We are his allies, those who believe in him. And being numbered with the transgressors, it says it means he identified with us. We are the transgressors. We are the rebels. And he takes his place with us and intercedes for us. And that's what Christ is doing. At this very moment, he is with the Father. And you know what he's doing with the Father? He is interceding. He is praying for us. Even though we're praying our feeble prayers, he's taking them, he's perfecting them, he's offering them to the Father. Again, what an amazing thing we have. And this is an amazing chapter. But the question is, what, what was our application? All right, we can be amazed at this, but what is our takeaway here? What is, what is this uh, talking to us now? Well, first of all, the first takeaway for us 
is we must not be like those rabbis and those liberal Christians or, or other non-Christian religions that reject the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. We dare not trust our own works when we're standing before God. We must not say, well, I'm good enough. I'll do it on my own. I'll trust myself. This would be the absolute worst decision that we could ever make. My friends, we are unable. We are unable to meet God's righteous requirement. And what is God's righteous requirement? It is perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. It is getting it right every single time. Not one, one, one mistake, one sin, and you've blown it. That is God's requirement. And our only hope is Christ. Only hope is Christ, that he has done it, that he has achieved perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. And that by grace, Christ's work is now credited to us and received in us by faith alone. So if you're not a believer, is there any here who, who can hear my voice who are not believers? If you have not received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone, if you have not despaired of your own work and fell totally on his grace, your only application, your only application is one. Come to him. Come to him now. Come to him while there is still time. Because when this life is over, there is no second chance. There is no second Eternity is a long time. So that's the first thing. If you are not saved by him, come to him. But what about if we're a believer? What about for the believer? What is our application? Well, basically, it's just simply to, to bask in this truth of what, what Jesus has done. We are, we are to let this, this reality seep into our souls. And, and when we do this, it can't help but change us. When we see what Christ has endured, when, when we see what we deserved, when we understand that, that he bore our griefs, that he carried our sorrows, that he was wounded for our transgressions, that he was crushed for our iniquities, it cannot not change us. My friends, it will naturally lead us to peace. It will naturally bring us joy. It will naturally lead us to worship. And as we consider this, let, let, let him be more beautiful to you. Let him be more real to you. And don't let anything take away that joy. Don't, don't think of it as, as, this is not real life. This is just what I do for an hour on Sunday, but then I get out to the real world. This is the real world. He is the real world. And then everything else will be in its proper portion. See, the more we hear this, the, the, the more we love him. We should never, ever get bored of this message. And the more, the more we hear it, the more we should praise him, the more we should worship him. And contemplating and meditating on this reality, it changes us. It enables us to be more like him. That's what sanctification is, being more like Christ. It allows us to endure life's sorrows. And just from our prayer request, there are a lot of sorrows that we have. And when we suffer, when we suffer justly and unjustly, we look to him. We follow him. We follow in his footsteps. We follow his example. As we heard in, in our New Testament reading, it said he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is our application. We are to follow that example. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace to believe this, to believe what we know is true. Lord, there's so many distractions, so many things striving for our attention, but the reality is that if we are in Christ, our sins have been paid for by Christ. And because of that, we will be worshiping and praising him for all eternity. Father, I pray for any here who do not know you, Lord, that they will receive and rest upon him 
and enjoy that. And for those of us who do know, Lord, I pray that you will renew our love for him, a love for Christ, and that we will live as if we truly believe this. We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.